The reading is from Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. It's on page 1234 of the Blue Church Bible. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Um, and uh, if you have got one of the Church Blue Bibles, it would be great if you could have that uh, open. We'll be looking at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8 to 11, which is the very easy page reference this morning of 1, 2, 3, uh, 4, which is... Uh, very easy for us to remember. And this morning we come to look at Jesus' letter to the church in Smyrna. And uh, we're continuing our series, What Does Jesus Want for His Church? And why don't I lead us in a prayer as we come to God's word just now. Father in heaven, we do pray that you might speak to each of us this morning through your Holy Spirit. Lord, you know us. You know us better than we know ourselves. You know the issues of our hearts. And so we pray, Lord, that whatever is appropriate for us, whether it's a word of comfort, a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation, a word may be of, a word may be of challenge or rebuke, Lord, we pray that you would do your work amongst us this morning. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name and for his glory alone. Amen. Well then, one of the news stories that you may have seen this last week was the rebranding of Tate and Lyle's Golden Syrup. Um, so for those of you who've not seen this, you can see the old branding uh, there on your screen. So this is a picture of a sort of lion's carcass with a, a swarm of bees coming out of it, which of course comes from the Old Testament book of Judges and uh, the story of Samson. And then you can see the new branding um, next to it there. It's a sort of um, simplified uh, lion's head and a single bee. Although the old picture, we are told, will still be available on some collector's items and classic products. <laughs> and the reason for this change, of course, is to move with the times. As one professor of uh, marketing told the BBC, the um, story of it coming from religious belief could put the brand in an exclusionary space, especially if it was to go viral on X or TikTok. Now, personally, I think all of this is to do with branding and marketing, uh, and Christians uh, really shouldn't be concerned about it at all. But I think it's one of those small things that just shows how far our culture has actually moved. You see, 100 years ago or so, a story from the book of Judges in the Old Testament was actually something that almost everybody would have known. But now, 100 years later it is highly unlikely that anybody would actually know it, including, actually, many regular churchgoers. As many of you will know, that sort of big cultural umbrella that was once um, 
Christendom has now largely gone, which means that uh, many Christians feel fewer in number. They feel more on the margins. They feel that the collective memory of Christian uh, values and Christian ethics is uh, gradually breaking down. Many people around us have little or no idea what Christians really believe, and some may even be hostile to Christians or to Christianity. And if you're anything like me, all of this can leave us just feeling a little bit marginalised, increasingly misunderstood, and very often in the minority. And all of this leads us into our Bible passage this morning as we come to look at the church at Smyrna. Last week, we saw that the Lord Jesus, he wants his church to be characterized by love, love for God and love for those around us. Um, And this morning, we come to see that Jesus also wants his church to be characterized by perseverance. He wants a church that keeps going with him, uh, even through hard times and persecution. Now, of course, uh, we clearly aren't being persecuted uh, here like the Christians in Smyrna were, as we will see. But yet, I think there's still an awful lot that we can learn here about how we can keep going with Jesus Christ in the context that we're in. As you can see from the uh, little uh, map on the screen, uh, Smyrna is the uh, next church around from Ephesus, which we looked at last week. It's about uh, 35 miles, I think, further north. Uh, And it is another big and important city, like Ephesus was. In fact, it's still a big and important city. These days, it's now called Izmir, and is uh, one of the biggest uh, cities in Turkey. And the big thing that we really need to know about ancient Smyrna was that it was a big centre for the worship of the Roman emperors. Uh, Probably every citizen in ancient Smyrna was expected to offer incense in front of a statue of the uh, emperor, the uh, Caesar, and declare that Caesar was Lord. Something, of course, which uh, no Christian could ever do. Jesus is Lord. And this led to persecution for the Christians there, uh, which is what we see here. It is uh, interesting when we come to Jesus' words to the letter at Smyrna that actually Jesus has no words of criticism for it at all. Uh, Jesus has no words of criticism for the church at uh, Smyrna, which is number two on the list. And he has no words of criticism for the church at uh, Philadelphia, which is number six on the list. And, And in both cases, it is because they are weak and they are being persecuted. You see, he only has words of encouragement, words of commendation and exhortation. You see, Jesus' heart is always to encourage Christians who feel weak and persecuted and downtrodden. That was the case way back then, and it is also true this morning as well. So then, how can we keep on going with Jesus and persevere? Well, I think from this passage, Jesus says that we need to grasp two things. Uh, We need to grasp the cost of discipleship, And we need to grasp the certainties of discipleship. And uh, we will look at these now uh, in turn. So then, uh, number one, we see the cost of discipleship. And what Jesus is saying to us this morning is that we need to be realistic that there is a cost to following him. This is often something that we naturally shy 
away from, but actually Jesus is incredibly upfront and incredibly realistic about this in the Gospels. So uh, just one example, uh, Jesus says to his, his disciples in John chapter 15 and verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Jesus is saying that uh, his disciples should ex- expect some element of uh, hardship, maybe even persecution. And this was definitely the experience of the church here in ancient Smyrna. Um, First of all, they were experiencing persecution in the present, right now. So in verse 9, Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. It's what we often see in the book of Revelation from the perspective of heaven. Jesus says that these believers are rich. They're incredibly wealthy. They're rich in terms of salvation. They're rich in uh, heavenly terms. They're rich in terms of a relationship with God. But yet, from the perspective of someone down on earth, what do do they look like? Well, they look poor. The word actually literally means something like destitute. Uh, The Christians in Smyrna were definitely not among the cultural elite. Uh, Most likely, they were actually poor because of their faith in Jesus Christ. You see, to do business in uh, Smyrna, you needed to be part of a trade guild. Uh, To be part of a trade guild, you needed to worship Caesar. Um, No Christian was going to be willing to worship Caesar because Jesus was Lord. And so, guess what? They missed out on business opportunities and economic opportunities as a result. It's possible that uh, some of them had even had their homes looted maybe because they were Christians that was uh, um, certainly the case over in the book of Hebrews and so the Christians were poor then Jesus also says um, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan and so we see that the Christians in Smyrna were also facing slander. They were facing opposition from some Jews who were speaking out against them. Of course, we often see in the book of Acts that the early Christians were often opposed by the Jews. The Jewish religion was protected under the Roman Empire. And so from its earliest years, uh, Christians were also actually protected because the Jews regarded uh, early Christians as a uh, sect of Judaism. But then as time went on and Jewish hostility to believers in Jesus as the Messiah increased, Christianity came to be no longer regarded as a sect of Judaism and it started to fall foul of Roman law. In places like Smyrna, the Jews may also have curried favour with the Romans by informing on the Christians and speaking out against them. And so here Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. I don't think Jesus is being anti-Semitic here. Um, Rather, I think Jesus is just saying that it's the devil who ultimately stands behind persecution of Christians. Uh, I think we can see the same kind of idea in the Gospels. So uh, Matthew 16 and verse 23, if you remember the Apostle Peter, he was trying to talk Jesus out of fulfilling God's plan and going to the cross. Um, And so Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Again, it's a um, similar kind of thing. Jesus was acknowledging that the ultimate origin of what Peter was saying was actually from the devil, the evil one. I think it's exactly the same here. Jesus is not being anti-Semitic here. Um, Rather, Jesus' point is that it is ultimately the devil that stands behind the persecution of God's people. No matter who's doing it, uh, whether it is the Jews or Romans or uh, anybody else. 
I think it's a reminder for us that uh, Christians are not to hate ever those who oppose them. But we are to be aware that we have a spiritual enemy who plots against us. And one of the weapons that is often used throughout church history, and maybe even now, is persecution. It is true that the devil is a defeated enemy. Jesus defeated the devil on the cross. Hallelujah. But yet he's still the very real enemy of Christians as we live the Christian life. As it says in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be alert and of a sober mind, your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So let's be realistic about the spiritual enemy that we have. Um, one who may use persecution or maybe uh, the fear of persecution against us. Then we also see that there's a cost to discipleship for these uh, Christians in Smyrna in the future. So uh, Jesus says in verse 10, um, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And so we see here that the devil will uh, put some of the Christians in Smyrna in prison, and that some maybe even uh, would be called to lay down their lives for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. And so really in all this, Jesus is reminding us that there is a cost to discipleship. There is a cost to following Jesus, and Jesus is very uh, upfront with us and tells us to expect that. Um, That was affecting the Christians here, and uh, they were beginning to experience it. I think there's a couple of applications here for us. I think number one, as we've already alluded to this morning, is that we need to be praying for persecuted Christians. Uh, In this country, of course, we uh, may not yet be in in danger of anything that approximates to government-sponsored persecution. The secret police aren't going to be coming, uh, tapping on our door in the middle of the night, for instance. But that's not actually the case for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, Many of you will know that I've recently arrived from uh, Hong Kong. And uh, in my previous church in Hong Kong, uh, we baptized the... uh, mother of one of our church members a number of years back. Uh, She returned to a different country in the region where she is now part of a small group of believers who meet as a house church. Uh, She was recently back in Hong Kong for a uh, visit and she told me uh, what things were like for her and her church at the moment. She needs to report to the local police station every month to have her mobile phone checked to make sure that she's not accessing any Christian material and to have her list of contacts uh, monitored. Uh, The pastor and elders of her church get called in for questioning every month and often have to spend a night in the cells in the police station uh, before being released uh, the next morning. And actually, that kind of story is not unusual in many countries in the world. And uh, she and her church uh, will be meeting uh, right now. And so we need to pray for people like her. Uh, If you're interested in knowing how to pray uh, for the persecuted church, there's a couple of uh, organizations and uh, websites there on the screen. 
So some of you may know these already, uh, BarnabasAid.org and uh, OpenDoorsUK.org. These are both organizations that seek to support persecuted Christians and will happily uh, email you uh, regular prayer uh, emails with a list of things uh, to be praying for. And then I think there's also an application here, uh, especially for Christians in positions of influence, maybe especially you in uh, later life, maybe after you graduate, uh, if you end up in a position of influence in government, maybe, uh, that Christians should work to protect the rights of minorities, uh, especially where they are minority uh, religions uh, that are being oppressed. And maybe historically, you think that, that the church hasn't always got a brilliant track record, But actually, the persecution of Christians here in Smyrna, in this passage, that ought to actually lead uh, to Christians trying to champion religious um, freedom and freedom of religion for everyone. I think there's also maybe a line of application for us here along the lines of, well, what are our expectations of the Christian life? What is my expectation of my own Christian life? Uh, I know that many of us, including myself, we are really uncomfortable with the idea of Suffering, uh, We don't like it. Our modern world has a lot of emphasis on self-care. It's got a lot of emphasis on caring for ourselves and making sure we lead a well-balanced life. And of course, lots of that stuff is really good. And God does want us to look after ourselves. But we also need to make sure that alongside that, uh, we remember the call um, of Jesus and that the call to follow Jesus as Lord also comes with the call to suffer and persevere as Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 29 for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him or what about 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted now those are not the kinds of bible verses that you are going to find in a, a Christian's, in a Christian greetings card um, or, or on the wall of anyone's home uh, with a nice painting maybe of uh, woodland animals. Um, but they're actually really helpful for us in terms of getting our expectations of the Christian life right. Of course, we don't go out looking for persecution and we must always be kind and winsome in how we hold our views as Christians, of course. Yet I wonder, are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel, if necessary? Um, If you aren't a Christian this morning, then I also think this is something that you need to be thinking about and weighing up as well. Being a Christian is, is really great, and we'll see some of the reasons why it is really great in a few moments' time. But yet Jesus is always really clear in the gospels that there will be a cost to following him. And as Eden Baptist Church, we wouldn't be being honest with you uh, if uh, we didn't tell you that up front. I think one thing that's really helped me in this whole area is is realizing that actually uh, suffering for Jesus at whatever level we are doing that uh, is actually a great privilege. It's an opportunity for us to be like Christ, to uh, follow in Jesus' footsteps. It's a great privilege to suffer for Jesus, uh, like the disciples in Acts who we are told rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus' name. Often, um, suffering for Christ can even lead to us knowing him in a deeper way. 
I think our previous generations of Christians had often grasped this probably a lot more or a lot more easily than we do. Uh, just to give one uh, example that I was uh, reading recently, which struck me, the uh, preacher George Whitfield, he preached in London on May the 11th, 1742, and then he recorded these words in his diary. He says, I was honoured with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. Now, I've lots of questions about that quote. (laughs) Especially the bit about the dead cats, as you can probably imagine. But what is actually clear is that for George Whitfield to suffer for Jesus was clear something that he actually counted as a privilege. He said, I was honoured with having a few stones, dirt, uh, rotten eggs, and uh, pieces of dead cats thrown at me. I think that's helpful to us when there's so much around us that pulls us in the opposite direction of suffering for Christ. So then, uh, we see the cost of discipleship. However, we need to move on, because we see here that Jesus doesn't just call us to suffering, but uh, he also provides all the resources that we need. And this moves us on to what I've called the certainties of discipleship. So we've seen that these believers in Smyrna, they were really suffering for their Christian faith, but yet Jesus writes to them to encourage them to keep going and be faithful to him. So there in verse 10, Jesus tells the Christians in Smyrna explicitly, he says, do not be afraid, and then later on, be faithful, uh, even to the point of death. And the, pers- the possibility of uh, persecution, even if it's just a vague possibility, often terrifies us, maybe even at a much uh, lesser scale, um, how can we be faithful and not be afraid? Well, the answer to that is found in keeping our eyes on Jesus. And here, Jesus gives us four truths about himself that can really help us to keep our eyes on him. Now, if you remember anything this morning, try and remember these four truths about Jesus. They actually apply to all kinds of um, um, suffering that we experience, but uh, they're obviously given us uh, explicitly here uh, in the context of persecution and uh, hardship for Jesus' name. So then at number one, uh, we see Jesus' presence. So if you remember from previous weeks, we have seen that Jesus is with his church. Remember, the last two weeks we've seen Jesus walks amongst the lampstands. Uh, Jesus is with his people and he cares for them. So in verse 9, we can see something of this care. Um, Jesus makes clear that he knows what his people are going through. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. Jesus knows. Jesus knows what you are going through. Maybe you've had the experience of trying to explain your hardships to somebody else, maybe some kind of counsellor, and they just don't get it. Uh, They can't. It seems like they can't possibly understand what you are describing, the emotions that you've uh, been through. And of course they can't, because they've probably never been there themselves. But that is not true with Jesus. Jesus knows what you are going through because he has actually been there himself. He's faced persecution and discrimination and humiliation, uh, pain and death. Uh, Not only is he the God who made us and therefore he has perfect knowledge, but he is also the man Jesus Christ 
who experienced all kinds of suffering when he was here on earth. And so he can perfectly sympathize with you in a way that nobody else can. It's actually a great encouragement for us. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets you. He understands what you're going through. And there's comfort in that. And so we can keep going. We can persevere. Number two, we also see here Jesus' sovereignty. So we can see this in verse 8, where Jesus says that he's the first and the last. That means that he's the one who is eternal and who rules over all. But we especially see it in verse 10, in a tiny little phrase, uh, where Jesus says that the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. That shows us that Jesus is in control of our sufferings. He knew it would just be for 10 days. Um, Some of the Christians in Smyrna will go to prison, but they will only be there for a week and a half. It's probably not a literal 10 days, actually. Uh, I think Jesus is really just saying here that their um, suffering would be limited in duration. Uh, He knows how long they will be suffering for. Uh, It's especially limited in duration uh, when compared to eternity. Of course, any pain and any suffering that we are going through feels long enough when we are going through it. And we may have many, many questions about why God allows what he does. But Jesus' point here is that it will end. God, in his grace, may remove some of our sufferings and hardships in this present life. But even if he does not, from the perspective of eternity, there is still only a short and limited time. uh, And there is great comfort for us in that. Um, In my previous congregation, we used to have lots of parents who would often make long flights, long-haul flights, with very young children. And one of my encouragements uh, to them as their pastor was always that it will end. (laughs) The flight will end eventually. Um, Sooner or later, that plane will come down. That is something that is guaranteed. It will end. So no matter how much crying there is, uh, no, match, no matter how much crowd control of multiple young children is necessary, um, no matter how much screen time your kids are exposed to, no matter how many times they are physically sick, and we have clocked up a lot, the flight will end. And there is great reassurance in that. I think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say to the Christians in Smyrna. He's saying it will end. Um, you may have to suffer for 10 days, But on the 11th day, it'll be over. And how does that compare with an eternity with me? You see, there's great comfort in knowing that any suffering we experience, even if it's up until the point of death, that it is actually only for a season. Jesus is in control. And one day, whether in this life or the next, a new day will dawn and it will be no more. And therefore, we can be faithful and endure. Keep on going with Jesus uh, in the present Number three, we also see something here of Jesus' purposes in our suffering. So we're told in verse 10, the devil will put some of you in prison. Why? To test you. Jesus explicitly says that although the devil was the immediate agent of the suffering of Christians in Smyrna, that God also has purposes in it, um, which is that they might be tested. 
reminds us that God often uses uh, suffering. We're told this many times in his word for the testing of his people. Again, very often the reasons for our suffering or what we go through will remain mysterious to us. We're not always told um, the reasons why we actually suffer. But we are told in in the Bible that one of the possible uh, reasons for God to allow suffering in our lives is testing. I think there's a couple of elements to this. Um, One is that times of suffering prove that our faith is genuine. So when a Christian comes to a period of hardship in their life, that um, shows that their faith is real. And then the other is that suffering also strengthens our faith uh, as we go through it. Uh, There's certain Christian character qualities, uh, things like patience or perseverance or hope that we can really only actually learn in times of difficulty. And God uses these times in our lives to make us more like Christ um, and uh, grow these qualities in us. And I think both of these things are probably in view here. Um, Jesus has purposes for these Christians in Smyrna, and we can be assured that he has purposes in our suffering too, uh, even if we're struggling to see them at the moment. Um, James chapter 1 and uh, verse 2 to 4 that we were looking at as a church last year. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And James is saying that the testing of our faith is a good thing because it can be part of God's will to make us more like Jesus. And so I hope you can really see some of the encouragements that Jesus wants us to draw from this passage this morning. Uh, Jesus is with us. Uh, He knows what we're going through. Jesus is sovereign. Our suffering will only be for a limited time, so we can persevere now with God's help. And Jesus has purposes for it. It may be a test, but it's a test with a purpose. And so we can keep going. There's one great final encouragement for us, though, which is Jesus' promise. Jesus promises life to all who endure. Um, last week, we saw that Jesus used the image of the tree of life. And this week, we see that he uses the image of the victor's crown. So, verse 10, uh, Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Verse 11, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This image of the victor's crown wouldn't have been lost on the Christians in Smyrna. The city hosted games and uh, the athletes who won would uh, win a wreath of leaves as their victor's crown. But Jesus is saying to them here, if you are faithful to me, you will also receive a crown. Not a Roman crown of leaves that will fade, not a crown that you earn, Uh, but the crown of life that I give to my people that will last forever. What does it mean that Christians will not be hurt by the second death? Well, the first death is when we die physically. This affects everyone and is what some of the Christians in Smyrna were threatened with for their faith. Jesus says that uh, some would be called to be faithful uh, even to the point of death. But then the uh, second death is eternal death in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 14, we are explicitly told that the second death is to be cast into hell. It's speaking about a terrible fate for all those who have rejected Jesus, including the devil and his angels. However, all those who have believed in him, to those who've trusted in his death and 
resurrection, then he's saying that the second death holds no fear for them, no threat for them. Uh, If Jesus has already taken our punishment in hell when he died on the cross, how can it possibly harm us if we have trusted in him and we have made him our own? If you like, we will all die once, but if we have been born twice, then we will only die once. Maybe you can talk about that over lunch. We will all die once, but if we have been born twice, then we will only die once. What a glorious promise. You see, very often the reason that we fear persecution or hardship so much is to do with loss. We fear losing our reputation, losing our job, losing our um, family and friends, or maybe worst of all, like here in Smyrna, maybe even losing our life. But yet Jesus is actually saying here that we have nothing to fear. If we suffer for him and the sake of his name, then we will never ultimately lose out. The worst thing that can possibly happen to us is that we will lose our lives. But Jesus says, I've even got that covered. I have defeated death. You may die once, but you won't die twice. You've got nothing to fear from the second death because I've taken it on myself in my body when I died and I have now risen again. Physical death is only an entry point into eternal life with me. As commentator Michael Wilcock concludes, let every Christian take heart for the Christ who unveils this dismaying prospect is one who has himself been through a Smyrna-like experience. Like their city, their Lord also died and came to life and guarantees resurrection for them too. His quote is alluding to the fact that there was a time when the city of Smyrna itself actually died. It was uh, sacked by the Lydians in 600 BC and was left in ruins for 300 years before it was rebuilt. Jesus has now died and has risen again. And now everyone who trusts in him will rise again, even although they die. And so this really is the great Christian hope. You see, where we look is terribly important. If we look at the culture around us, any kinds of hardships or persecution that we may face will soon get discouraged. But if we fix our eyes on Jesus, and especially the crown of life that he offers, and we keep on trusting in him, then we will have the strength to persevere. What does this mean for us? Well, uh, one thing that we've already looked at is uh, praying for the persecuted church. I think it also means this morning that uh, we ought to have confidence to embrace the relatively small ways that uh, many of us in in this culture maybe are at the moment and maybe will be in the future called to suffer for Jesus. Uh, When we face things like lies and slander, when we face things like a misrepresentation in the media, maybe it's social uh, exclusion uh, for the sake of Jesus, um, for instance. Um, Number three... I think this also means that we ought not to be afraid for our children. I think this is a particularly big one for me in my own life. I feel it's one thing for me to be poor or to be slandered or lonely for my faith in Jesus. But it's quite another thing for me to think about that with respect to my children. I suppose my natural instinct, like many parents, is to want to spare my children any kind of uh, suffering for being a Christian. But I think I really need to take on board... Uh, what Jesus says here, that suffering for him is always worth it and results ultimately in the crown of life. 
And therefore, I can commit my children and any suffering that they may face in the future uh, into his hands with confidence. Maybe for some of us here this morning, um, we maybe need to take some of our anxieties to God in this whole area um, in the light of what Jesus says here. That Christ is with us. Our suffering will only be for a season. Jesus has his plans even in suffering. And when we do suffer for him, Jesus promises the crown of life. And because of those things, um, we can keep going. Well, somebody from ancient Smyrna who persevered in his faith was a man called Polycarp. So it was around the year 155 AD. It was about 60 years after the book of uh, Revelation was written. And so Polycarp was probably a young man at this time. And in uh, 155 AD, Polycarp was arrested. Uh, He was told to make the required sacrifice before the bust of Caesar or face death. The officials pleaded with him to just give in, saying uh, what harm could it it, uh, possibly do? But Polycarp refused. Maybe he remembered the Apostle John, uh, who he had probably known as a youth. Uh, Maybe he he even remembered the words that Jesus said to the church at Smyrna in the passage that we've been looking at this morning, uh, which uh, he would have uh, certainly known. Eventually, they reached the crowded stadium where the Roman proconsul exhorted Polycarp to swear his allegiance to Caesar and to deny Christ. And Polycarp then responded, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme the king who saved me? The proconsul persisted with him, threatened him with wild beasts, and then fire if he did not recant. But Polycarp would not deny Christ. Eventually the fire was lit, Polycarp was burned, and he received his victor's crown. Now probably none of us will ever be called to lay down our lives like Polycarp did, but yet we are called by Jesus to persevere and be faithful and not give in to fear. Will we do that by fixing our eyes on Jesus and especially on the crown of life which Jesus offers. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to give thanks for your word to us this morning. We acknowledge that the prospect of hardship or um, suffering for you is uh, something that we naturally shrink back from and often fear. And so, Lord, we would humbly pray for your help in our lives. We pray that you might help us to persevere and keep on going in being faithful to you. We give thanks that Jesus is with us, that Jesus is sovereign, that Jesus has purposes for us, and that he promises the crown of life in glory to all who keep going with him. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you in this coming week um, and not on our circumstances. And we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.